Welcome to FR, the OTLP. I'm TM. <laughs> and I'm RW. <laughs> I'll expand that a little bit. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Red. One of the first reading options for September 12th, 2021 is Isaiah 50 verses 4 through 9a. And Tim has prepared some thoughts to guide us through this text, which I am really looking forward to because it has one of my favorite verses in it. <laughs> of course it does. Of course. <laughs> and in fact, this is a passage that we've covered before on first reading in one of our very first episodes a couple of years back. Rachel, you led us through it brilliantly then, but it was in a particular liturgical context. It was the Palm Passion Sunday text for that year. So I figured I could build on your brilliant insights there and recycle this text for another solemn context this week. You're right. This is So this is September 12th, just the day after 9-11. Mm-hmm, exactly. So even though this text comes as just another week in the long section of ordinary time in the lectionary, it happens to fall this year on September 12th, the Sunday after the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. Wow. in New York, D.C. and Pennsylvania. So that, that big anniversary will likely be in the minds of congregants all over the U.S. and probably others around the world as well. Wow, I didn't realize it was the 20th anniversary this year. Mm. So, yeah, so you think this text can, can speak into that moment? Well, let's find out together. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, it's suspenseful. Okay, where do you want to start? Historical context, literary context? Uh, let's do literary context. For 500. Got it. All right. So a uh, bit of review here. This section comes in the middle of what we call Deutero-Isaiah, or Second Isaiah, prophecies that are understood to have come not from the 8th century Judahite prophet Isaiah, but from an inheritor or inheritors of the Isaiah tradition who were writing near the end of the Babylonian exile in the 6th century. The dominant theme of this section of Isaiah is the hope that a new exodus is coming and that God's people will return home. Our passage begins uh, in Isaiah 50, verse 4, which seems a little odd at first, but when you look at the traditional divisions of the text that are preserved by the medieval scribes, those Masoretes, <laughs> the same dividing marker is between verses 3 and 4 as the one that's found right before verse 1. If you have a Hebrew Bible, that's the little Samech that's all by itself mm. there, which stands for stuma, meaning the close of a section. So basically all that to say, it seems that this really is the start of a new section. Uh, this, this is considered one of those famous Isaiahic servant songs, uh, even though in this case, the word servant, evid, isn't used. But there is a noticeable switch um, from like talking about things and people and about God to the first person as the prophet talks about himself or herself throughout this passage. Okay, so let me sum up. This is a start of a new section, which is sort of a new section. It's a sort of servant song, which doesn't use the word servant, and there's a noticeable switch to the first person. Did I get it all? You're caught up. Great. <laughs> all right. Hey, hey. So, so how does this first person then describe themselves throughout the passage? Well, the passage starts out with this like super enigmatic line. I mean, it's, it's enigmatic in the sense that the Hebrew itself is really tough to translate. The NRSV says, the Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher that I may know how to sustain the weary with a word. Beautiful. 
The JPS puts it a bit differently. The Lord God gave me a skilled tongue to know how to speak timely words to the weary. Now, in this case, the NRSV is kind of out on its own among English translations with that phrase, the tongue of a teacher. Uh, the, The Hebrew there, Lashon Limudim, is literally a tongue of learners. Hmm. Limudim probably means those who are taught. Uh, The JPS uses their skilled tongue, which is also a little bit of a stretch in the Hebrew, but it's, you know, it's within the realm of possibility. Personally, I kind of like translating it a tongue of learners because that same word limudim is repeated at the end of of verse four. God has awakened my ear to hear like the learners. And that seems to make a lot of sense to me there, but it raises an interesting question. What is a tongue of learners? Hmm. What could that mean? Rachel, do you have any ideas? Well, first of all, I'm mad at you for ruining one of my favorite verses, but I have a few others, so I won't be too angry. (laughs) Uh, No, I think this makes a lot of sense in some ways. I mean, the the parallel that you left up between the limudim, the limudin, the learners and the learners and I guess if I'm just kind of off the cuff imagining, if we're imagining this as a classroom setting, uh, the tongue of learners may be like one who asks questions. Would that be where this is going? That could be. That could be. Now, but think about it even more carefully. If we emphasize okay. that learning in the ancient world was often oral and involved memorizing lists and proverbs and poems oh. and stories by hearing them and reciting them. Okay, so a learning to a learner's tongue is one that recites back what the teacher has has modeled. Yeah, that's exactly the image I think the prophet's offering here. God is the teacher and she is the student. Hmm. The words that she proclaims aren't her own, made up in her own head. Instead, she's reciting only what God has already said. And what does this training in speaking up for God equip the prophet to do? Mm, to strengthen the weary with a word. You've got it. Yes. And, you know, the Hebrew's a little bit weird here too. The word that's translated to sustain is actually very rare. And it's only taken to mean sustain in this spot. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a little ambiguity there. And, and the word, word, davar, is just sort of hanging out there at the end of the sentence in Hebrew. But all that, you know, the translations are probably on the right track with this. God has given me a learner's tongue in order to know how to sustain the weary with a word. Hmm. And the word there, that davar, in this context, isn't just talking about like a knack for public speaking or a gift for gab. The the prophet is emphasizing that the word they give is, is, it's like a technical thing, the word of God. Hmm. The word that sustains the weary is God's word. Oh, I like that so much. I love this. I mean, especially for for preachers, because I used to remember sitting down to write a sermon and knowing that it would be spirit inspired and knowing that it would be, you know, spirit led and spirit used, but still feeling just this intense sense of anxiety and pressure that I needed to be the one to come up with it. And, Mm. And just if I could have memorized this, that it's a learner's tongue that sustains the weary, you know, it's, it's just quite literally reciting to people what God has already said. Um, there's some, there's some just beautiful, you know, work with that. Mm-hmm. And 
And there's a ton of body language in this passage. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I couldn't miss that after all that I've been learning from you. <laughs> yeah, right. We, uh, we have the tongue of learners that we've talked about. And also in verse four, an ear that hears like learners. And then in verse six, we have the prophet's back, which is given to the beaters. Cheeks that are given to the barbers, a shaved beard was a way to publicly shame a man. And their face, we hear about their face, which was spat upon, but also which in verse seven is set like flint. Hmm. When, when all of this body imagery piles up in a passage like this, I can't help but conclude that the prophet is writing about something that they've experienced in a physical way, hmm. where the recalling of it induces a kind of somatic response. But what do you think? You know, it's interesting because that's one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite verses, but not necessarily one of my favorite passages, because it it is such a quick jump from this kind of beautiful idea of the the tongue of a learner, as you've opened up for us, to this really kind of intense description of taunting and abuse. Uh, were you able to make sense of what's going on there? Mm. Well, maybe I have a start. Okay. The, the prophet talks about having a learner's tongue and a learner's ear in order to establish that their words are God's words and to give them confidence that they're speaking for God, which, which gives them, you know, kind of like a chutzpah to speak out despite the opposition from those who challenge and mock and abuse them. Hmm. For this prophet, God is near to them and that's all that they need. And in fact, there's uh, there's kind of an interesting little play in the Hebrew right uh, between verses 6 and 7. In verse 6, they say, I didn't hide my face from insults. But then in verse 7, they say, but God helps me so that I'm not insulted. The Hebrew is the same word there, klimot, insults, and then lo nichlamti, I'm not disgraced or insulted. In other words, because God is with me, the insults that come to my face don't find any landing place there. Hmm. So the prophet here has this profound trust in God, whom they experience as near, karov. Hmm. Uh, that, that word karov isn't exactly body imagery, but it is, at least in my reading, pretty physical. Like there's yeah. this tangible sense of proximity to God. Yeah. God hmm. is so close to me that I can face terror I can set my face like flint and know that I'm going to endure while the bullies wear themselves out until they're like old moth-eaten clothes. Do we? Do you have any sense of what the prophet might have been going through historically here? Well, not really. I mean, we can speculate about that. Um, okay. I read. I read one commenter who supposed that if this prophet was like supporting Cyrus, the Persian king as God's anointed agent, and that language is in Deutero-Isaiah, uh, you know, appointed to initiate the return from exile, then there would have been plenty of religious, like no compromise hardliners who might have persecuted that kind of a, of a perspective. Oh. But I think we can't really know what the historical circumstance was. And in any case, I mean, even though the passage is framed in the first person, it endures a scripture because it was read as applying much more broadly and I don't see any reason to doubt that the prophet themselves wanted this expression of trusting God to be a model that was taken up by the whole people. Mm. It's, it's not like a, like a, look at me, look how great I am type of bragging <laughs> prophecy. Yeah. It's a, God is so worthy of trust that I've put up with all kinds of abuse and you can too. Mm. 
Yeah, that I mean, and that makes a lot of sense when you think of the communal identity that was so strong and important here. People wouldn't have heard these words and necessarily thought of them just as like me and God. Mm -hmm. They would have heard them in this context of the whole, you know, the whole communal relationship with God. You know, and you bring up an interesting point of this idea of putting up with abuse. You know, that's that's always got to be a caveat when we come to to sermons. You know, mm-hmm. there's there's no sense in this text. I think you would agree <laughs> that people in abusive relationships should just you know shut up and bear it. Essentially, no, and that's that's a really good point to emphasize. This passage isn't talking about relational abuse. It's talking about the kind of abuse that comes from those who would use it to bully you out of faithfulness to your God-given calling. Nice. It's not talking about passively taking abuse, but about actively resisting it with a mm. face set like rock, moving toward the, the vocation that God's given you, sort of eyes on the prize. So, so yeah, this isn't a prophecy of passivity. It's a prophecy of resistance. Ooh, I just got chills. That was really well said. Yeah, and it's cool too because the New Testament picks up on this language to describe Jesus mm-hmm. when he when he sets his face to go to Jerusalem for the last time. You know where he's anticipating he'll be suffering and and ultimately dying. Yeah, yeah, and and the quotation there that's uh, that's Luke nine fifty one uses a similar Greek phrase to the one that's in the Septuagint version of our Isaiah fifty passage. Nice, and and, and so the concept there is the same. Jesus knew that God was with him. So he had the confidence to face his vocation with boldness. I love this idea. I think this idea of the confidence to face your vocation with boldness in the face of personal attacks. I mean, that's like social media. I I feel like (laughs) that is the call to being present. I really do struggle with, with being on Facebook anymore because I really find it hard to live out my vocation in a place that feels uh, uh, like it's mired in retaliatory abuse. Mm-hmm. So this, you know, setting our face to to face our vocation with boldness, um, it strikes me too. I mean, as I'm just thinking of this, you know, as you talked about the 20th anniversary of 9-11, what does it mean now for us 20 years after that event to set our face to face our vocation with boldness. What, what is the vocation of this country, um, especially, especially in terms of retaliatory attacks? Um, you know, what is going to be our response? Will we continue with, you know, with Guantanamo Bay? With um, I, I, preachers, truly, I don't know how political you want to get with this, but this idea of of setting your face against insults to not respond with retaliatory abuse, but to respond, as Tim said, by letting God be the vindicator. I don't know. That seems like that could be a powerful sermon too. What do you think, Tim? Yeah. I mean, this isn't the only text in the Bible that has this sort of uh, tenor to it, but this is a good one that lifts Mm -hmm. up nonviolent resistance Mm -hmm. as a way forward, as a way to to meet the onslaught of, of attacks. And that's the kind of the kind of strategy that has been picked up by a lot of the the people that we admire. Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. <laughs> superstar. <laughs> yeah, MLK, Gandhi, all of, all of yeah. the those who have famously fought the powerful through nonviolence, yeah. who have resisted uh, injustice through nonviolence. It's it's passages like this that that set the groundwork for that that type of thing. 
I wonder for our folks who are veterans and who lost brothers and sisters in combat, you know, both both blood brothers and sisters, but also that that combat brother and sister, if it can feel like you're not honoring them to just sort of slip out of Afghanistan. But if after 20 years, the violence is continuing, is there a way we can honor those who've lost their lives by setting our face in a nonviolent way to, to fight this sort of violence and terror in a different way so that the fighting does not stop, the resisting does not stop, but that it changes its tactics? Mm-hmm. It's, it's definitely worth considering. And some of you uh, preachers who have either your own personal experience in a military context or who have a, a good segment of your congregation who has that kind of experience, I bet you'll have the, the sort of wisdom and reflection to be able to bring a text like this to that sort yeah. of context um, and, and find helpful things to say. This could be a good week for some coffees with your vets, in other words. Mm, yeah, yeah. Mm. Well, preachers, this is a tough one, but know that our prayers go with you as you preach this word with uh, the tongue of a learner in order to sustain the weary in your congregations. Uh, it's a good call, and it's a, it's a hard call, but a good one, and we trust that you're doing a great job with it. Thanks, Tim, for your work this week. Thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to Trinity Lutheran Seminary for a generous grant to help support that work that we do here. If you liked it and want more, you can always find us at firstreadingpodcast.com or on the Book of Faces or wherever fine podcasts are to be had. Until next time, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Remember, God is near.